The Immortal Game is a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year and is available in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 28 Bishop's Gambit I called Bishop the next morning. Once I got it into his pointy little propeller head that I actually had his software in my possession, he agreed to see me. Eagerly. I told him I would stop by around midday. But before heading down to Woodside, I took another walk down post to visit the chess room of the Mechanics Institute Library near Montgomery Street. The librarian said I didn't look like a man who would be greatly interested in chess, but she agreed to help me use the computer-based card catalog to dig up a few books on the subject anyway. I put in several hours beneath a gigantic demonstration board reading about famous games in chess history. I returned the books to the librarian when I was finished and admitted that her estimation of my interest in chess had been about right. The sun had burned off the morning clouds and fog by the time I pulled into Bishop's driveway. The house appeared freshly scrubbed, and the surrounding ground seemed as green as the emerald in the Buddha's belly button. The bell played the same waltz as last time, but I still couldn't place it. Jody answered the door wearing another swimsuit. This one was a dark, one-piece number that was cut so high in her hips it almost exposed ribs. Flying in the face of sound structural engineering practices, a flimsy netting that exposed a great deal more than ribs had been used throughout the top of the suit. Hello, August, said Jody soberly. Things didn't work out very well, did they? Edwin says Terry brought it all on herself, but I can't help but feel bad. Really? I said. That's white of you. Is the big fellow around? An odd expression settled on Jody's face. He's on the phone. He told me to take you to the study to wait until he gets off the line. Lead on. I followed a few steps behind, watching her taut calf muscles flex and release as she sashayed down the marble hallway. She dropped me off in the same study chair as before. Looking around, I realized for the first time that the chessboard next to Bishop's desk was actually a computer with pressure-sensitive pads of the sort Duckworth had described. I fiddled around with the switches until some lights came on, and then I made some trial moves with the black pieces and watched as the computer responded. I had been going at it for about 15 minutes when a voice from behind me interrupted. What's the damage? I looked up to find Bishop standing at the door in a bathrobe and sandals. Jody was just behind him. I'm ahead in captured pieces, I said, but I understand you can't always judge by that. Yes, it depends on the circumstances. We're going out to the hot tub. Would you care to join us? Thanks, but no thanks. I didn't come prepared. I'd be happy to loan you a bathing suit. The thought of me trying to squeeze into one of Bishop's swimming suits was laughable. No, I'll have to pass. Bishop made a dismissive gesture. Well, come out with us anyway. We can talk while Jody and I soak. I got up and followed them out the study door, down the marble hall to an adjoining hall that led to a back door. The door opened onto a vast redwood deck that was laid out in a parquet pattern and extended from the house in multiple tiers. Wrought iron lawn furniture was scattered across it on various levels, 
and planter boxes with carefully trimmed Japanese bonsai were set along the edges. We followed the course of a winding stair to ground level, and then went along a flagstone path into a group of oak trees. The hot tub was in the middle of a large clearing, set flush into a redwood deck, and covered by an octagonal pavilion. The tub itself probably wasn't big enough to hold the killer whale show at SeaWorld. Bishop opened the hinge doors that covered the tub, stripped off his robe, and stepped inside. Jody paused to flip the switch that controlled the jets, and then followed him into the bubbling water. Bishop eased his arm around her as she settled in. This is a life, eh, Reardon? You should have taken your chance when you had it. Yeah, it seems I miss a lot of chances. Bishop gestured to a small clasp envelope I had carried from the car. So you have my chess software in there, do you? I did notice that a PCMICA card had gone missing, but I couldn't be sure Terry had taken it. I opened the envelope and pulled out the card. I held it between my thumb and forefinger and turned it slowly, like I was admiring a thing of great beauty. I still can't get over these cards, I said. They say the more advanced a technology is, the more it seems like magic to the uninitiated. Well, these babies seem pretty magical to me. But to answer your question, yes, I'm told by somebody who's up on this stuff that your source code is on the card. I guess it's pretty valuable to you now, being your only copy and all. It's immensely valuable. In fact, I'd appreciate it if you would return the card to the envelope and place it on the deck. I wouldn't want to handle it with wet hands. I looked down at Bishop. His pale skin and spindly build made me think of a plucked squab being parboiled. I leered at him and calmly flicked the card into the water. A strangled cry erupted from Jody. What the hell do you think you're doing? thundered Bishop but made no effort to retrieve the PCMICA card. It fluttered to the bottom of the tub, a dark square visible through the bubbling water next to Bishop's overgrown toenails. If I wanted to be poetic, I'd say I was returning a red herring to the sea. Bishop's eyes bored up at me. He pulled his arm out from behind Jody's shoulder. You're going to have to explain that. You couldn't stop me if you wanted to. While I was waiting for you in the study, I arranged the chessmen on your chess computer the way they were after the tenth move in a match between Anderson and Kesarinsky. It's called the Immortal Game. I expect you've heard of it. Anyway, the one thing I learned about your software is that your program is the only one on the market that could be expected to duplicate Anderson's next move when placed in the same situation. You told me that Terry McCullough had taken or destroyed all the copies of the software. Imagine my surprise when the computer in your study also duplicated Anderson's move exactly. So that's what you were up to, said Bishop. But you're quite mistaken about the chess computer in my study. It's running a chess program I wrote several years ago. That program is good, but it doesn't have anywhere near the capabilities of my new one. Never mind that you've completely lost sight of my reasons for hiring you. Why would I pay to recover something I still had? You wouldn't but you would pay good money to frame Terry McCullough for Roland Teller's murder. Jody moved away from Bishop. Her eyes flashed back and forth between us. Bishop sat mute, his arms tightly crossed. I crushed the envelope into a ball and bounced it off his forehead. What's the matter? Does the great Oz lack for words? Bishop roared and slapped at the envelope where it floated on the water. You are an insolent cretin! Terry McCullough stole that software, sold it to Teller and killed him. There's rock-solid evidence to support every one of those assertions. You yourself recovered the software from her purse. 
I don't doubt Terry stole a copy of your software, and I'm sure she pitched it to Teller. But even Teller wasn't dippy enough to license software without talking directly to the principal. I think he contacted you after he was approached by McCullough and told you what he'd been offered. The funny thing is, you weren't really hurt by the theft. As your experience with Mephisto proved, it would be very hard for Terry to sell the game. And while she did take a copy of the source code, and maybe even destroyed a backup or two, someone as experienced as you would have backups to your backups. But the theft did give you an idea. It gave you the idea of killing Teller and pinning the blame for his murder on McCullough. You should write for the Inquirer, Reardon. What possible motive could I have for such a thing? Revenge, of course. And I don't mean for the software theft. I mean revenge for something she did to you that hurt you very much more. She gave you AIDS. Bishop blanched at the word. I turned to Jody. And she probably gave it to you too, Cupcake. Or Eddie here passed it on. In any case, you wanted revenge just as bad. That explains why you tipped me to the power station with a concerned friend act at my office. Jody squealed and jumped out of the hot tub. She ran back towards the house. I continued pounding on Bishop. At first I didn't figure Teller's role in the scheme, but now I think you told him you needed his help to make a better case against McCullough for the software theft. You probably offered Teller the legitimate rights to your game in return for his cooperation. The risk to him was slight. McCullough would find it hard to prove he was lying, and the reward for being the publisher of your game was great. Or so it would seem to him. What you didn't mention to Teller was that a key component of your plan involved chilling him off with Terry McCullough's gun. You set him up by sending him a key to the East Palo Alto apartment and asking him to meet you there. Then you shot him. With Teller out of the picture, my role was to bear witness to the whole story and encourage the police to think McCullough capable of murder. You may not have planned on me being at the apartment that night, but it actually helped your case since it forced me to pass on your lies to the cops that much sooner. Bishop tilted his chin up and stroked his beard like before. He was about to give me the benefit of his superior intellect. I think the blows you've received to your head have scrambled your brains completely, Mr. Reardon. My training as a chess tactician and computer scientist has taught me to analyze problems dispassionately in a thoroughly logical manner. Your theory doesn't hold together. There are too many inconsistencies and unexplained behaviors. How could I have obtained the key to Terry's apartment to send to the unfortunate Mr. Teller? I have not had any contact with Terry since she left my employ. Second, if the chess computer in my study has the significance you claim, then why would I leave you alone to play with it? That would be the last thing on earth I should wish you to see. Finally, and this point is the most damaging of all, why would I give a copy of my chess program to Teller? Him of all people. Why would I risk losing control of the most sophisticated chess software in the world merely to revenge myself on a cheap prostitute? I laughed at him. Your dispassion is slipping a little, Bishop. I don't know how you got hold of Terry McCullough's apartment key, but I'll make a special effort to find out. You weren't concerned about my playing with the chess computer in your study because you didn't expect a cretinous private eye would be able to make anything out of it. As for your last point, your mention of chess tactics is quite appropriate. In the immortal game, Anderson begins his match with Kessarinsky with a gambit. He sacrifices one of his pieces at the start of the game to gain an advantage at the end. Just like you risk losing control of your chess program by giving it to Teller. The piece Anderson sacrifices is a bishop. That opening is known as a bishop's gambit. The guy behind me wasn't very good. But then, he never really had been. I heard him as soon as he stepped onto the redwood decking. 
he made a rush for me, swinging at my head with a wicked leather blackjack. I twisted to my left and the sap burned at my ear and my cheekbone instead of cracking open my skull. The sudden movement threw me off balance, and I ended up on all fours at the edge of the hot tub. As I struggled to stand up, the lad with the blackjack took a long step and dove straight into my kidneys. My hand slipped forward into the water, and the next thing I knew my attacker had a fistful of my hair and was thrusting my head under the bubbling froth. Fortunately, I was too far into the water for him to have much leverage. I reached up and grabbed his wrist and then dug my toe into the decking and pushed for all I was worth. He tried to pull back, but it was too late. We both fell into the tub, a mass of swirling bubbles and tangled clothing under the water. My foot touched bottom and I shot to the surface for air. I found Bishop cowering in the corner of the hot tub and his goon attempting to wrap me in a bear hug. I slipped my hand under my suit coat and jacked out the Glock. After days of walking into blackjacks and drawn pistols, Reardon finally pulls out his gun when it will do some good. I swung the butt down square on the brain pan of my dance partner felt his grip slacken, and then watched as he floated on the surface like a dead mackerel. It was Todd Nagel, of course. I yanked his head out of the water so he could breathe. Bishop saw which way the wind was blowing and tried to scramble out of the hot tub. I reached my hand up and grabbed him by the waistband of his swim trunks and pulled him back into the water. I slammed the automatic into his jaw and viciously wedged the barrel into his mouth. I pushed it down his throat until I heard him start to gag. Got milk? I said through clenched teeth. You have been listening to The Immortal Game, a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year. Find it in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.